Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Today's episode of the podcast was brought to you by Cosmos Clinic. Now, Cosmos are predominantly most well known for their body contouring procedures, so liposuction and the famous BBL, which stands for Brazilian butt lift, for anyone that doesn't know what that means. But they also do a lot of cosmetic injectables too. And they've already got uh, clinics in Sydney, Adelaide, in Canberra, uh, up in the Gold Coast, and most recently they've opened up a clinic down in Melbourne, in Hawthorne to be precise. And they are looking for an experienced cosmetic injector to join their team. So if you think that sounds like a role for you, or maybe you know someone that might be suitable, you can reach out to them at melbourne at cosmosclinic.com.au or you can phone them on 03-9071-0270. All right, thank you and enjoy the podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Zachariah. Dr. Zachariah is a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons for Otolaryngology and specializes in facial plastic surgery. He is also an ear, nose and throat specialist physician and has completed over 4,000 rhinoplasty procedures throughout his career, as well as many other advanced surgeries. Dr. Zachariah was formerly the president of the Australasian College of Cosmetic Surgery, as well as a member of the Australasian Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery, the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, and the Australasian Society of Otolaryngology. Dr. Zachariah also presents at international conferences and seminars and is involved in a number of industry training initiatives. We discussed his general approach to surgery, specifically the neck, the current fox eye trend, as well as aesthetic surgery for transgender patients. Well, cheers, gentlemen. It's been a, it's been a minute. <laughs> cheers, gentlemen. For those who uh, can't see us, we're having a nice Scott yeah. Sunday evening cheers. podcast, which is very unusual for us. It's been, what, we haven't been together, we were just saying before we went live that um, we haven't done an in-person podcast since before COVID or just before the lockdowns. Was That's it before? Right. Uh, I was with Steve and Lou just at the start of the lockdown. Yeah, so it's at God. least three months. We've and been we- Zooming and Zooming, which is great, but, you know, having that personal connection, having a beautiful guest in front of you drinking <laughs> a scotch is much, much nicer. Yes. Yeah, I agree. What have you been doing? How's, we were just saying COVID's been really good for you in some ways. It's, it seems busy. Yeah, you know what? During the lockdown, um, I actually was doing a lot of Zoom consultations. Yeah. And uh, I mean, one day I had 12 and we were charging, you know, normal rates for consultations. And so that kept things rolling along. Mm. And I would say probably about 70% of those consultations have already progressed to surgery. That's and, incredible. And completed their surgery. And the other 30%... Uh, you, the usual things are either because of price or because of uh, just distance. You know, I have people from Perth, from Melbourne. I've got lots of people from Melbourne waiting to come up and have surgery and they're just not able to leave it, of course, at the moment. And, and what type of – is it like it's a particular type of surgery or is it just everything? People are just getting everything done. Look, specifically, my, my sweet spot is rhinoplasty, no surgery. So it's no surgery and facial surgery mostly. Right. Yeah. And how did the dynamic of doing a Zoom or a virtual consult 
impact you know how you would normally do it because obviously it's you know you want to have a play and a feel and you know yeah. all those sorts of things so how did you do it well it's interesting because a majority was no surgery i had the patient send in photos so i've got a a really nice program called touch md uh-huh. and the all the patient details goes on to touch md they can upload their photos into touch md and so that's uh, i can then download them and then uh, i can manipulate them on the screen in front of the patient. Yeah. So I can actually show them what they want to achieve. Uh-huh. Now, that, of course, doesn't affect the function of the nose, so we need to have a look inside the nose with a telescope, something like that. But, um, you know, the patient, we can discuss the, the, the different aspects of their surgery, what they like, um, you know, a little bit more of a curve on the bridge of the nose and the realistic aspects. Some of the photos were quite funny that they sent. I was going to say, you're at the whim <laughs> of what they send, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, some of them were, were really funny. And uh, we, we tell them to, you know, do them from the front and from the side and from underneath. And uh, yeah, some of them <laughs> had people in the background. and <laughs> Selfies oh, from yeah. this angle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The side photo coming down like this made the nose look a lot worse. So it yeah. worked, worked in my favour. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually interesting, you know, we, we've spoken about it a few times on the podcast, but when people take a selfie, it really can distort the nose, can't it? Oh, yeah. Look, um, one of our uh, registrars actually did uh, presented a paper about the selfies yeah. and how it changes the photograph from, yeah. or it changes the face uh, from the different angles and, uh, you know, how close it is uh the the photo and the fisheye appearance so it does make a big difference and i must say that's part of the problem post-surgery that people come in and they say you know when i hold the camera like this from this angle and the sun's coming through the window and (laughs) you know i can see a little bump somewhere on my nose yeah and it's like well just don't do that (laughs) that's exactly (laughs) the easiest thing to do all the time people don't look at you from that angle people are not like in your bathroom hiding looking in the mirror (laughs) trying to catch you at a bad spot it's just exactly and then you've got we had this discussion with um well it was the webinar we did with um Woodrow yeah. talking about how like different cameras, like the cameras on your phone can distort your face because they're yeah. trying to, I don't know, they've, everything's automated, but it, it does depending on the lens can make your shape of your face and particularly features like the nose look entirely different. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So, but, uh, but Zoom worked. It uh, really did work very well. And, you know, the interesting thing is even now I'm still, I probably... Uh, on a day of consulting, we'll do three or four patients by Zoom, interstate patients, um, Zoom or or uh, you know some of the Skype or whichever yeah. ones, and um, even a lot of New South Wales patients are electing to do it by by this modality rather than come in because it's easier than coming from Balkan Hills or, or yeah. you know. So it's interesting. that I think it's going to be a really big part of the future. Do you feel like you establish a rapport with them as good as you would in person, similar to, you know, the podcast when we have guests from, you know, America, that's probably the best we can get, but it's never going to be the same as having someone in front of us. So when you're mm. going to operate on someone and you're maybe trying to, you know, pick out some red flags or, or things like that, do you think it's as useful? Look, I... I think it's a great introduction and I say to all the patients that before surgery I want to do the 3D imaging, I use the vector machine, so I want them to come in, have a chat and I I think the whole thing about surgery is not just about the procedure, Mm. it's about looking after the patient, them getting to know you, your staff and all of that. So it's very important that they come in and actually spend some time in the rooms, meet my staff because that's a a very big part of the the post-operative care starts 
before they even had their surgery. Exactly. So obviously, uh, I've known you for a few years, Jake, just met you, but obviously he's heard of you, but we've got listeners now all over the world. How many countries is it now, Jake? At least 45 regular countries yeah. listening. Wow. So I guess for the benefit of those that don't know Dr. Michael Zachariah, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are, your background and how you, how you came to be, um, I guess, yep. one of Australia's most prominent ENT surgeons? Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Adelaide. Um, that's where I was born, where my family are, and where I uh, went to school and university there. And uh, <clears throat> I was, I always wanted to do medicine, and I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to end up doing. I was thinking of being a cardiologist, a cardiothoracic surgeon, and you go through, you know, when you do the uh, the different. Uh, surgical specialties or medical specialties, you like them, you fall in love with them and you want to do them. Uh, however, when I was 14, I actually, uh, one of my friends, his girlfriend's father was a plastic surgeon, Gwyn Morgan. I remember when I was 14, I actually was at their place and I went and asked if I could speak to the father. And I spoke to the father and said, oh, you know, Mr. Morgan, I want to do surgery and I want to be a plastic surgeon. And he said, oh, Michael, you're 14, you know, you need to get through medicine first or get through school first and then get into medicine. Once you're into medicine, you've got to get into surgical training. And once you're into surgical training, you've got to get into, you know, plastic surgical training or similar. It's so arduous. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, and so from a very young age, my father was a doctor. He was a, the, the classic GP uh, surgeon. You know, he graduated in 1955. So he did more appendixes and gallbladders <laughs> and bowel resections than I ever did. And um, so I always had that interest in medicine. And I got into medicine, you know, I worked hard, I studied hard, I passed, uh, got into surgery. And uh, when I finally graduated uh, in ear, nose and throat surgery, rather than plastic surgery, I got a, I got a message from Gwyn Morgan saying, congratulations, I heard you got through. Uh, and he remembered it from 20 years earlier. Wow. Um, my uncle was a, an ear, nose and throat surgeon. And um, when I was, and the reason that I... Uh, decided on the ENT path rather than the plastics path was a very simple one. My uncle was an ENT surgeon. I, we knew a lot of ENT surgeons. And if I had to do plastics, I was going to need to wait another four or five years mm. because when I was going through, it was all very locally based. Uh, it wasn't a national Australia-wide scheme. It was all like in Adelaide and there was only one position available or two positions available and there was a waiting list of people. So I was going to be three, four, five years before I uh, got through my uh, training. So the other thing was that with ENT surgery, the specialty is really on on uh, with facial plastics, which is big in America, of course, and now is big in Australia. Is a lot of the facial plastic surgery is done by ENT surgeons. Mm. So, of course, rhinoplasty, facelifts, brow lifts, all, all the facial plastics. So I, I knew I wanted to do plastic surgery and I thought this would be a path that I would be able to take and follow and, and that's what I've done. Mm. So in terms of the wait of four to five years, is that just because of the demand to get onto the surgical program? 
Correct. Yes. Right. Yeah. But up until the point where you presumably went private, you weren't doing facelifts and stuff in the public sector. So it was tonsils and grommets for ears and all that kind of stuff, was it? Well, actually, that's quite interesting. Adelaide was a, a remarkable place to do training because you had exposure to everything. In the four years of surgical training, you really had wide exposure. Now, everyone knew that I wanted to do facial plastics. And so... Most of the ENT surgeons at that stage had been doing a lot of rhinoplasty anyway. So in the public sector, I actually did 200 rhinoplasties over a four-year period. That's incredible. Yeah, so um, – and I would – whenever there was a spare spot to uh, to fill – I would bring in a, uh, a patient for a rhinoplasty and see the different surgeons do the different ways of, uh, of doing the uh, surgery. And one of the guys, in fact, two of the guys that actually started the facial plastics group in Australia, uh, one was John Tomich and another Dean Southwood, they were based in Adelaide. Mm. And so there was that impetus of facial plastics in Australia that actually started at home in Adelaide. And so I was exposed to that and so I managed to see quite quite a lot of that surgery. Mm. That's really lucky because a lot of even plastic surgeons, when they go through the, the training program, they're not really doing breast augmentations and, and that sort of thing. So you're really lucky that during your surgical training, you actually got to do a lot of the procedures you're actually going to be doing in your private practice, which is unusual. Yeah. And the other thing was that uh, you know now the trend is to do more external rhinoplasty, open rhinoplasty instead of closed. And Back then, most of the surgeons were doing closed rhinoplasty. So I would say 70, 80% of our procedures were closed. So I learned the most difficult way of doing a rhinoplasty, which was the closed technique. And so I still you know, encompass that in my practice now, doing the closed technique as well as the open in the correct patients. Yeah. You know, the right place at the right time, it sounds. Yeah. Oh, I was. I really was, yeah. And then I read that you went over to Beverly Hills. And you studied with Dr. Harry Glassman. Yeah. So um, I went to Beverly Hills. It, it was interesting. I was on a family holiday, actually. And um, my sister, who was a great Dallas fan, <laughs> um, knew of Victoria Principal. And Victoria Principal was married to Harry Glassman. And she said to me, my sister Helena, uh, said to me, why don't you see if you can go and visit Harry Harry Glassman. And I was like, you know what? I might just do that. So at that time, I was actually working in Oxford. And I was, uh, after my time in Oxford, I was going to come back to uh, to America and spend some time. And that's what I did. I rang up Harry Glassman's um, office. I spoke to his practice manager, a guy called Sam. And Sam said, I said, I'm from Australia. And he said, you know what? We have an Australian here at the moment who's doing an interview for Dr. with Dr. Glassman uh, just for a magazine, Vogue magazine. And, uh, and he said, yes, you're more than welcome to come in. I've checked with Dr. Glassman and come in. And this was just before email was becoming big. You know, <laughs> this was a while ago. And uh, I was lucky enough at that stage, I planned to be in America for a year. So I spent a couple of days with Harry and Harry was doing all aspects of plastic surgery. He was doing breasts, tummy tucks, uh, liposuction, facelifts, noses, everything. And he was based right in the center of Beverly Hills. And um, when I came in and he, I was meant to be there for three days, he said, so how long are you going to stay here for? And I said, well, I'm actually going to be around for about a year. <laughs> like, oh, great. And, I can get rid of this guy now. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. And um, – 
fortunately, we, we got on very well and, you know, I'm one of those that I, I didn't actually – I, I don't hang around if I feel that it's not right to be with the surgeon and with the patient. I, I'm I'm sort of there in the background, but not really um, around like a bad smell. Yeah. And uh, and so he said, Michael, I don't have a trainee. He didn't have a fellow working with him. He said, you're more than welcome to use this place as uh, your your base for the next um, twelve months. And uh, he said he would introduce me to other surgeons, and he did. He introduced me to Steve Hofflin, who who did Michael Jackson and Lady wow. Fairfax and all sorts of people. <laughs> um, and I also spent some time with Dr. Frank Kamer, who was a facial plastic surgeon that was just around the uh, the corner at the Lasky Clinic. So that year, um, I I just what a place to train. That's yeah, incredible. Met some of the the greatest. Uh, you know, surgeons and and saw some amazing uh, people have uh, have their surgery as well. How do you reflect on the American aesthetic to the Australian aesthetic? We've discussed this a couple of times. You know what? Um, back then, that was in the um, the late nineties. So back then, New South Wales, Sydney seemed to be very similar to. Los Angeles. Right, okay. You know, Los Angeles was very different to New York, but Sydney was very close to, to Los Angeles. And I think that, uh, you know, New South Wales, Sydney was different to the rest of Australia, a little bit more conservative the rest of Australia. And that's one of the reasons that I ended up in Sydney and not back in, in Adelaide because of the conservative nature of, uh, of Adelaide. Um, but I think that now it's melted into into one. You know, it's a it's a global world of plastic surgery, and uh, yeah, we see some some crazy cases on on TV and on <laughs> shows like Botched and stuff. But I, I think the aesthetics are very very similar mm. in terms of uh, what patients want and surgical outcomes. And I think our, our surgeons are just as well trained uh, as a lot of the surgeons over there. I think Australian surgeons are held in very high regard from yeah. what we, I've heard from uh, American surgeons and British surgeons. Yeah, we, we have a really good training program. And um, and we're, we're fortunate because we, we get to do a lot of cutting yeah. um, straight away. You know, they really put us in the firing line straight away. Some some guys in Germany, they, they do their four years of a fellowship and they don't actually start doing surgery until like the third year. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, which is, it's crazy. So we're very lucky like that. Yeah, and you'll start to notice these differences even between um, you're saying that the, the, the east coast of America compared to the west coast, I think a lot of it has to do with climate as well. It tends to be the warmer the climate, the more sort of body and image conscious people tend to be. Do you, do you find that as well? Or? Yeah, very much so. And that's why living in LA for that, that period of time, at that stage I hadn't lived in Sydney. I'd only visited, hadn't lived in Sydney, but had planned to, to come back and, and look at working and living in Sydney. And, and once I did come here, it's very similar, very similar. And uh, the body conscious nature of, uh, of, well, all of Australia now, it's not, not just New South Wales. Well, we had um, a podcast with Professor Greg Goodman, was yes. it, last week? And mm -hmm. I mentioned that the first time I saw him speak was at Luna Park and you were actually presenting at that same conference. Yes, I remember back, that I think conference. It was when, I think it was the launch of SubQ, maybe? Does that sound about right? Maybe it was around about then. I reckon it could have been, yeah. But I, I, one of the things I noted was like how much of a, of a natural speaker you were, um, you know, how engaging, calm, um, credible. 
And that's a, it's a sort of a skill that a lot of people tend to struggle with these days. I guess there's a lot of people that, um, you know, don't have that experience talking in front of large groups of people. Like how, how did, is this just a natural skill that you sort of had or was it something you've worked on or? Um, it's a, it's a natural skill. I think, uh, I enjoy public speaking. I enjoy, um, I, when I talk to my patients, I can talk for a long time, you know, because <laughs> you don't charge I, by the minute, hopefully. No. And I, I like to, I like to provide people with, um, as much information as possible. And my father always said to me, you know, treat people like you like, you would like to be treated. And I think that's uh, very important. So I, I always give people, patients information that they can, uh, take home and, and I remember one of my uh, one of my mentors and bosses during my training said, "When you go to a conference, go to as many as you can. Mm. If you take one or two things away from the conference and that's all, then that's great. You've learned something, and it's about the the socialisation." I've always been quite happy to stand in front of people and and talk. Um, it becomes a bit more difficult when you're standing in front of your colleagues uh, because you you really need to be on the ball and uh, what you're saying has to be credible uh, and, and well-researched. And nowadays, speaking in front of your colleagues, it's all about videos. So you have to have good photos, good videos, good everything yeah. uh, to do presentations in front of your, your colleagues. It's a lot harder to impress people these days than it used to be. <laughs> you've got to come well, with the goods. You've got to come with everything. You do. You do. You, you have to. And, and some of the, you know, some of the th um, speakers that I see now from overseas and, you know, from Russia and from all, all parts of the world that you wouldn't expect to to be uh, impressive are extremely impressive because they've got the uh, tools behind them with the videos, etc. Yeah. Do you still train in injectables? Because obviously you were doing it at some point. Or are you still doing that's that right? Now? Yeah, I was a trainer with uh, with Allegan for a long time. Oh, okay. And, I didn't know. Uh, yeah, I'm doing yeah. that now, so I didn't know. <laughs> so in the in the very old days of uh, Allegan training, where I actually used to teach all about Botox. So now they do it online, but uh, we used to have seminars where I used to actually stand up and teach. Yeah, and uh, one of the things Allegan actually put me through some training with one of the. Uh, one of the groups who who help with you know elocution etc. Yeah. So they did that with all their trainers. I'm not sure whether they still do it now. Um, I think it's available, but it, it's, it's changed probably now. So I remember two years ago we went to Singapore, right, and it was multifactorial. You learn about injecting, but also there was a station on presentation, right. So yeah, it's a skill that some people just don't have. And others like yourself, it just oozes out of them. You can just, you know, it's just obvious. So right. I don't know if you can teach it or not. I, I do remember them saying during this this program, and I can't remember the name of the company, but, you know, try not to say your ums and ahs. And I did start this sentence by saying um. um <laughs> there I go again. Uh, but try to, you know, keep the, uh, the in, you know, the information flowing and, to not be so stop-start staccato and, and, you know, try and keep it calm. Mm. I think also the other thing is you, you can't lie when you talk. You know, you, you just talk about the truth, talk about what you know, and if you don't know it, then you, you know, you, you just 
don't try and fib your way through it. Yeah. Mm. And one of the skills that the, you know, international key opinion leaders have to have now is to inject whilst talking to a crowd of 500 people, yeah. whilst engaging everyone, whilst fielding questions from, you know, the host on the stage. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Whilst not giving someone an occlusion. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember doing that in Brazil, actually. I was in uh, Rio de Janeiro and I was uh, uh, teaching how to inject a, a product and it was very funny because there were translators. I had the the earphones on. I had the microphone, and there were. I remember actually injecting the, the patient's face. I turned around, and there there was a sea of doctors around me, just literally on top of me. And it was so funny because I and the, there were all these beautiful women doctors, <laughs> female doctors, and I, it was just very very funny seeing them around me and having to talk and translate and the whole lot and at the same time being skillful in what you're doing and also, uh, you know, infection control, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Seems like if you that that's the way it goes now. They're just like they're almost like a like a Cirque du Soleil event now. You know, there's lights <laughs> yes. and music and you know people running off stage and changing sets. It's, just, it's yeah, like that's it's, that's right. Yeah, but uh, to answer your question, I'm I'm not actually doing any teaching now for uh, for Allegan or any of the companies at the moment. Fair enough. So tell us about your injecting experience then, because. I wouldn't say it's unusual, but less and less surgeons at your level are still injecting yeah. to you know to a high level as well. So why do you still continue it? Um, I've always liked injecting. Uh, I've always thought it was uh, was fun. Uh, I know the anatomy very well, yeah. and so I think that I get really good results. Um, I've changed the way I do inject now in terms of uh, rather than someone just coming in and saying, I want my lips done, I, I, have, I offer packages because my time is so valuable that if I'm staying with a patient for half an hour or 45 minutes just doing their lips, it's not valuable. So I try to actually um, inject the, the whole of the face. Yeah. Um, so instead of just injecting one to two mils of filler or using a, a collagen stimulator, um, I'll in, inject the whole face. So that, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. But sometimes people come in and I still like injecting noses and that's why I think um, I've kept on going with injecting other parts of the facial anatomy because I like noses, injecting noses, primary and secondary noses. Yeah. Mm. So How many... Um, Revisions do you do surgically versus with injectables? Um, look, in my own patients, um, I told my patients that there's a 5 to 10% chance that they will need to have some further surgery performed mm -hmm. uh, because of issues that happen with the primary procedure and they're usually uh, associated with scar tissue. So of... Of those patients that need a little tweak, a lot of them will have just a little bit of filler to make an adjustment. Yeah. Um, of patients that come for as secondary revision surgeries from other surgeons, uh, it's probably about five to ten percent that I would inject, but a lot of them really need the full-on surgical revision. Yeah. Yeah. It's a question I was going to ask you. I can ask both of you because you both inject the nose. But how long do fillers last in the nose? Because I'm assuming it's a pretty static area. Do you get pretty good longevity or does it sort of... I'll let the experts oh, okay. answer first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it, once you, you, you get to a point of stabilization where, you know, it can take one or two or three injections... <laughs> 
it seems to last a long time. And interestingly, I see a lot of patients who are primary rhinoplasty patients that have had fillets or hide a bump, and they say, that's it, I'm ready for surgery now. And so you dissolve away the, the product with hyalase, and you go in the nose, and there's always filler there. Yeah. Always. You open up the nose, and even though they had hyalase throughout the nose, and I've, I've injected the hyalase myself to dissolve it, there's always some filler there. So I think the, the filler seems to stick around, whether it's encapsulated in a little bit of uh, fibrous tissue, and it stays around for a long time. I, I always think of this one lady that uh, came to see me for a revision rhinoplasty around about 10 years ago. She still comes back and has some uh, Botox injections. She came and saw me for revision rhinoplasty. I said, look, it's so minor what you need. Why don't we put a bit of filler in and just do that? And she loved it. And over the last 10 years, she's probably had three lots of injecting. Mm. And the more time that's, that's gone on, the less product that we've needed to inject. Right. So it does last. You can get a long lasting result, especially if you're just doing little little tweaks of the nose rather than the full thing. And what's your weapon of choice? Is it uh, what do you, what do you use for the, when you're filling the nose? Is it vary depending on the patient, or you've got like a standard oh, sort of? I, I tend to use one of the um, one of the a hyaluronic acid. Yeah. So I use a hyaluronic acid, and one of the and my favourite one at the moment is Tioxane RHA four. Right. You know that's what I've been using recently, and uh, uh, RHA four or Voluma. You know, they're the ones that I've just been using and they seem to be uh, good and last a long time, have a, a reasonable G prime, which is good. So uh, they seem to stick around. I mm. concur, doctor, with Voluma. <laughs> you concur? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although, interestingly, today, um, by the time this podcast go out, I'll be able to say it, today Volux was launched. So that's the newest uh, Allergan filler, which is sort of above Voluma. So it's got an even higher G prime yeah. and it's more structural. So I'm interested. I mean, some of my colleagues in the UK have used it for nose right. and they say it's much more um, cohesive, gives a better shape, doesn't sort of spread, you know, as much sometimes with even the best fillers around at the moment. It just sort of doesn't hold that shape. Yeah, I've, so, I've heard about it as well. And uh, I think, was it developed for chins? Chins and jaws. Yeah, so this will be an off label yeah. Um, yeah. indication. Yeah. So have a play and tell me what you think. Looking forward to trying it. Yeah. So. One of the things that's quite, I guess, uh, unique about yourself is that you're an ENT, you're a specialist surgeon, but you seem to have this like large scope of procedures that you do, which is a little bit, I wouldn't say it's un unusual in a negative way, but you don't hear about it much. A lot of um, surgical specialists now tend to sort of hone in um, on, a, on a fairly sort of narrow scope of procedures, but you tend to offer everything sounds like well, it's harry glassman's fault <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's right so was it like was this a conscious decision or is this just like a, a natural sort of you know organic way your practice sort of developed or i guess maybe as, as sort of jake alluded to um your training you sort of learned how to do everything so you thought heck i might as well use everything i've learned yeah the, there's no doubt that um my my interest was always the facial plastics and uh, for a, a while there, I was doing some body surgery as well uh, because I, I learned that overseas with, uh, with Harry. Um, when I returned to Australia, I was doing some body surgery, but mostly the face. Uh, a lot of surgeons will concentrate on one part of the face, whether it's the eyes, the nose, or the brow or the face itself. Uh, I've always liked all aspects of, of the facial surgery. And um, I love doing facelifts. Uh, 
is one of my passions and rhinoplasty I, I've just always liked. So in, instead of just saying, I only do the nose, I like to do the whole of the face. Yeah. I guess um, when you're looking at it that way, I guess you can, you're sort of looking at it you know, holistically rather than piecemeal. You're looking at, you know, harmony between different features and, you know, I guess you could go in and, you know, you might be able to alter a few things or address a number of concerns, you know, yeah. in, in one Look, the, the classic, I saw a girl on Friday who is um, going to have rhinoplasty, but she had bags under her eyes, which were terrible bags. And I said to her, you need to have your eyelids done, your lower eyelids, because, you know, they're, they're just very heavy. And she said, you know what? Everyone says that. They always say that I look tired mm. and I'm not tired and I feel well. So to be able to do that surgery rather than having to get another specialist in just to do that aspect of things, I think is very important to, to have those skills. Mm. And most surgeons will be able to do lower eyelids, but doing the upper eyelids and the facelift. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time traveling overseas, visiting different surgeons, learning the techniques. So in the pre-COVID days when we could travel, <laughs> um, I used to love going and spending time in other people's practices. And even if it was just a day, even to watch a bit of Botox being injected. Mm. Uh, so I think it's very important to, to learn those skills. I think it would be frustrating to not be able to manage those problems because like you say, you could treat someone's nose, but then their eye bags or their tiny chin or whatever it may be would be still really um, distracting. So the fact that you can, you know, look at the whole canvas and say, well, let's just do it all. And then maybe yeah. do some injectables, you know, just to sort of finish off. I think that's a great skill set to have. Yeah. And look, I'm experienced enough now that I don't feel that I'm embarrassing the patient or embarrass myself about saying to a patient, look, you know, you, you've got problems with your, as well as your nose that you've come <laughs> to see me about, your eyes are doing this and your chin is doing this and your neck is doing this as well. So I, I tell them, I just look at them and say, this is what I see that I can change. Yeah. And then it's up to them to make that judgment uh, whether they want to do one or all things. How do you manage those people who... David used the, f the phrase several times recently, the forest through the trees. They, they just can't see that glaring issue, maybe may a neck when they've come in for their nose and it's just never going to look good. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the time the, the 3D imaging is very good for showing patients what they, what they look like. And when you do the imaging in front of the patient and they see the changes, yeah. they, they see the real wow factor um, in relation to that. So um, some patients, they just can't afford it and they will do some filler to their chin and then they'll come back and do their chin and their neck yeah. at a later date as well. And I, I try and help out with those patients. I'd rather take less money for a procedure, uh, an additional procedure that's going to really help the patient's profile and try and help them along uh, than them having to come back and do it. But, you know, every some people, they go away, they listen, they think about it, and then they decide to, to go with it or not go with it, you know. Yeah. I, I never force patients into doing things, but uh, give them all the information so they can make, you know, um, smart decisions about it. I find the imaging probably, for me, the game changer because, like you said, they may have never seen their side profile or, you know, doing some unusual expressions that we ask them to do as standard, and then they go, huh, 
didn't actually realize I looked like that. And then it opens a conversation to allow you to do a more holistic treatment rather than doing what they asked you to do. Yeah, very much so. I am... Um before I consult my patient, I have a, uh, a a consultant that goes in, sees the patient first to discuss what problems they're having, whether it's fillers or whether it's for facial surgery. And we take a photo and put the photo up on the screen so that they can see their, their face on the screen because it's, it's very different seeing yourself on the screen um, than it is looking at yourself in the mirror. So it's, it's good for just injectables and it's good for surgery as well. Yeah. But I do find that most patients, you know, they, they know, you know, that small chin, the excess skin of the neck, they, they know what they've got. They're aware and, uh, and sometimes they're happy that you've just pointed it out. Yeah. I was going to say, sorry, what 3D imaging do you use? Because that's not something usually available to injectors, but I see more and more of it coming yeah uh, and the software is getting better and maybe a little bit more easy to use yeah i use a, a 3d imaging system called vectra mm -hmm. so the vectra system and uh, it's great because when it first came out you had to have patients stand in front of these big panels and uh you know three different panels and now it's just a normal camera that we take from three different positions uh -huh. so it's, it's very easy to actually use yeah and there you can manipulate the nose and say, look, this is roughly what you may look like, et cetera. Correct. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the, we were talking on the phone um, about you coming on the podcast and one of the areas I said I'd like to talk to you about was the neck. And you mentioned the Zach lift, which, yeah. which we'll get to in a minute, I guess. But um, in terms of that area of the, of the face or the body, it tends to be the area that tends to get neglected. People spend a lot of time and money getting their face sorted out or, you know, their breasts done or what have you. But then this neck tends to be the area that is usually the giveaway of how old someone is. Um, and I don't know whether that's because people just don't realize it or there's just a limitation on, on the procedures. Um, I know there's the surgical procedures, but in terms of your options that are available to you, I mean, how do you sort of approach this area? Yeah. So, look, the neck is probably one of the hardest places to treat and if you have sagging skin of the neck, there's not much you can do other than lift it. And a neck lift, the only way you can really lift a neck properly is to do a facelift as well. Um, and then even when you do a really good facelift and neck lift and the, the neck looks fantastic, if the skin integrity is not great, then it starts to sag again. It's very different the skin of the face to the skin of the neck because the, the neck skin has got less sebaceous glands and it is thinner. You can't do a chemical peel or laser on the, uh, the, the, the neck skin because it is thinner. So it scars easier and it just doesn't have as much collagen and elastin as the, uh, as the, the face. So that's an area of one, failure, or two, people just don't treat it. So you need to use collagen stimulators. You need to use Botox, like I've had Botox in my neck just <laughs> recently. A little bruise. Yeah, a little bruise. I know, I know. Um, and so uh, you need to do that as well as doing surgery because surgery is um, – it moves tissues, but it doesn't change the quality mm. of the tissue. So it's very important, and I try and stress this to my patients, that I can pull that neck as tight as I can, but if you don't use collagen stimulators, PRP, um, different sort of lasers, uh, you know, softer lasers for collagen stimulation, you, you're just not going to get the final result that you want. 
So which is your preferred route? Would you get the skin looking good pre-surgery or they've got to do it post-surgery? What's your sort of protocol? Yeah. Well, look, it's a bit like, you know, putting colour in your hair. Do you put it in before you have a cut or after you have a cut? That's what I haven't reached that yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah I, I have. We're, we're embracing the salt and pepper here. We're not, we're yeah. not claiming. Exactly. Silver fox. Yeah. So, look, I, I think that um, when you do surgery on the, on a patient and you tighten the skin, there, there are changes that are going going on with cell communication between the, the, the skin cells after you've tightened it. Yep. And I think that they tend to respond better uh, to things like stimulation with uh, the, the collagen stimulators, etc. after the surgery. Some patients just don't have time to do, uh, you know, all the will. Some patients want to get on and do the surgery and have those things done afterwards. Yeah. And some people just uh, are not ready to have surgery for six months or so. And so I try and get them to have some sort of collagen stimulator. Yeah. I use the Ultraformer, which is a, a ultrasound, focused ultrasound. And I think that works really well mm. on, uh, on the skin to get some tightening. You're never going to get a, a lift like a, a facelift or neck lift, but uh, uh, it does help the integrity of the skin. There's no doubt that patients that have had skin stimulation before surgery, when you're actually doing the surgery, their skin just is it just lifts and holds so much better. Yeah, it's more robust. Someone, it is more robust. Yeah, and you know that they're going to get a better long-term result. Mm -hmm. Do you use um, Sculptra or Yes sort of fan through what would they call it a neck wash? Well, I you think did mine the other day. <laughs> I, did you? Are you still alive? Yeah, I am. Yeah. You're feeling okay? <laughs> yeah, I was a little bit bruised for a couple of days, but I just wanted to – I've always been conscious of that area of the body. I'm like, I want to try and get ahead of it. Yeah. Because we're like – Jake and I are both turning 40 this year. We're like, shh, don't tell anyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm well ahead of you guys. <laughs> yeah, so I thought I want to get ahead of it. So he did my he did mine with Radius the other day actually. Yeah. So, so I have used Radius in the neck and uh, I really liked it. Yeah. Um, Sculptra I haven't used. Okay. Uh, I use Sculptra in the face. I, I actually really like Sculptra. I think it's one of those – uh, products that a lot of people just haven't used. Yes. Got a bad rap um, and very early on with a, I think it was poor injecting technique. It gave it a bad rap. Yeah, the, the concentration the of dilution, the, yeah. yeah, dilution and the poor injecting technique with granulomas, etc. Mm. Um, it's a real surgical type of injection because you don't have to be precise about it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can just fill the face with sculpture just like you you know, put fertilizer in the lawn, just drop it everywhere and you get, <laughs> and you get this lovely improvement. But in the neck, I haven't used it. And uh, I'd, yeah, I'd love we, to know. We did a, a podcast with Sabrina Farby. She's sort yeah. of a world expert on biostimulation. And she said that um, it's not as good in the, in fact, you should avoid it in the neck. It's too thin. So right. you are at risk of getting, um, you know, nodules, et cetera. Whereas the radius, you can hyper dilute um, yeah. you know, sort of mix it up with some saline. And I, and I thought you were going to tell me something new there because I, I, I've never used Sculpture in the neck and, <laughs> and for, the, for those reasons. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're onto the right thing. Yeah. And do you find, I mean, you know, you mentioned that um, people that have it prior to surgery, it makes your life a lot easier and obviously enhances the result. But do you think there's uh, any benefit in people sort of, as, as I've done, trying to sort of ahead of time, trying to keep that area uh, you know, youthful in terms of its collagen and elastin stimulation oh, through look, these sorts of things? Or do you think you're... Absolutely. No, yeah. I, I, I think so. I remember when I was about 12 years old, I, I saw my mother's uncle who had amazing skin and he was in his mid-70s. And I asked him, I said, wow, what, what do you do 
with your face and your skin. He said, every time I shave, I put moisturizer on. And so when I started shaving, I put moisturizer on. And to this day, every day, I put moisturizer on my face and my neck. And I think it's very important to to start the process early, mm. uh, whether it's with skin treatments, with creams, etc., and serums, uh, or with stimulators, using Botox early. I think it's very important to uh, to do so if you want to maintain that youthfulness. And of and, course, sun cream. Yeah, sunscreen. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and don't bake yourself. <laughs> don't don't bake yourself. Use the sun cream. Don't smoke. Because yeah. smoking's terrible for your skin as well. Yeah. Um, and and start early. I, I think it's important to start early. I mean, yeah. It's incredible seeing people's skin in Australia. I've been here five and a half years, but you see these 40, 50, 60-year-olds, and it's like leather. It's um, yeah. so crepey and damaged and thin and it's just sun damage it's it's nothing else it's not age it's it's advanced age yeah so yeah it's and important. they expect us to do miracles yeah and, and unfortunately <laughs> the younger patients they just they don't really believe it or they don't think it's going to happen to them and you know they're still out in bondi frying themselves and 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 asking for botox and filler and it's like well you could do a lot more just by protecting yourself yeah yeah so, for sure. yeah prevention better than cure so yeah. What is a Zach lift? <laughs> Jake and I, I've been, I've been waiting to hear what, what it's uh, all about. <laughs> Illuminate us, please. <laughs> okay, the the Zach lift is a, a term that we've we've given to, or that I've given to, changing the the dynamics of the neck. Uh, it's mostly for younger patients who are uh, have got some excess skin that's hanging down and you know the patients that always come and they've got a good jawline good chin but they've got that excess skin the the dewlap or the whatever, turkey neck the turkey neck yeah um but at least reasonable quality skin so uh i use a combination of skin tightening techniques and the things that i use are vaser mm -hmm. to tighten the skin and also the j plasma yeah i've seen um, that and the j plasma is is excellent as well. So I use the, the combination to tighten the skin. Then I go in and actually do some work on the muscles of the neck. Uh, so it's not just a superficial thing, it's the muscles of the neck as well. And to get that nice cervical mental angle, you really need to lift this part of the neck uh, right up. And the only way you can do that is to uh, do application of the platysma muscles. But What's also mo most important is that you need to treat what's underneath those platysma muscles as well. So that's the subplatysmal fat. So quite often I'm going in, removing that subplatysmal fat. And then in some patients also, if they've got a really uh, you know, flattened uh, neck there, I would do some work with the digastric muscles also. Mm. So just trim the digastric digastric muscles so you can do all that through a little incision in the uh, submental area around about a one and a half centimeters and it makes a really big difference now also sometimes to to get some better definition of the jawline um, there was a, a plastic surgeon from new york called gm papa and he has a suture technique where he stitches one platysma muscle so the left one he puts a suture that goes through to the right mastoid. Hmm. And then he has another one from the right mastoid, uh, right platysma to the left mastoid and hoiks it up. And so sometimes, depending on what I'm actually going to be doing on the patient, I'll do the vasor, I'll do the J-plasma, I'll do the subplatysmal fat, 
plus or minus digastric muscles and then work out whether I'm placating or doing that GM puppet type suture uh, into uh, the neck. So doing the combination. Can you explain the J-plasma in a bit more detail? So the J-plasma has a combination of, so it's it's a device that, you, you pass under the skin, uh, just like a liposuction cannula. Uh, it's attached to a, uh, looks like a, a, a cautery uh, device, and uh, it actually has helium uh, attached to it. So it produces a, a plasma energy. Yeah. At the end of the um, of the probe, and also radio frequency energy as well. So it's got a combination of radio frequency and plasma, and what it does is it it causes contraction of the fibrils between the the skin and the underlying uh, subcutaneous tissue. Uh, it heats them so you're getting immediate contraction. Mm. So you do get a little bit of heating of the skin at the same time. The ideal way of doing it is that you're not actually opening the, the tissue like I'm doing with my my Zach lift of the neck. Um, so the ideal thing, and so if you're using it on the abdomen, for example, with someone with uh, a lot of loose skin of the abdomen, um, you're not opening that tissue. But I, in fact, do that. And uh, it's thought that both the VASA and the J-plasma work by uh, the fine little fibrils uh, that connect the skin to the subcutaneous tissue. They contract, and that's yeah. what helps to tighten them. So can you do it under local or not? Yes. Oh, yeah, you absolutely you can. Right. Yeah. In fact, I've got two mates, and I received a message on my phone <laughs> on my phone today saying, "When are you going to do my neck?" So, right. uh, yeah, and so you can do it under local. You know, you can do almost anything under local anaesthetic if you if you have a uh, a good technique of putting it in. Do you think any of those sorts of devices, not the Vaser, maybe, but have got any use in a non-surgical setting totally, or does it have to be mixed with surgery as, as well? Uh, so you mean a non-surgical setting in the rooms? Yes. Oh yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I think the the J plasma. Um, there there are some other machines, Accutite and different radio yeah, body frequency. Tight, yeah. yeah, and uh, I think they they really do work in in some uh, some patients. Mm. It's picking your patient well, you know, and not promise, not over promising. Yeah. But in some patients, I think it does work really well. When are we getting one? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just down the road, we'll come and harass you for a bit. <laughs> for sure. What's the recovery time like on that? Just by the way, on the J plasma, are you sort of, uh, you know, not fit for public consumption for a number of weeks, or are you minimal downtime. Uh, so if you're doing J plasma mm. by itself. Um, and you're just passing the probe. It's, it's a bit like the old laser. Remember the laser? Uh, you could use a laser skin tightening by putting oh, yeah. a laser probe under the skin, which yeah. would so dissolve. I that some, initially a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the J-plasma, if you're just doing it alone, a bit of swelling for a couple of days and then you're, you're fine. Virtually no bruising. Um, the thing about it is that the actual probe has to pass through uh, some pre-made tunnels that you make with either a liposuction cannula or with the vaser machine. Yeah. So you're, you're going to get some bruising anyway, uh, bruising and swelling. Um, but with the, the Zach lift, I always tell patients that they have to wear a garment afterwards and I like them to wear a garment for a week. Uh, and after a week, they, they really, you can hardly tell that they've had anything done in terms of swelling, etc. It's amazing. Have yeah. you ever played with threads well, in generally, but then also for the neck. Yeah. 
how how do you think that they honestly uh the efficacy versus say filler or surgery obviously surgery is the gold standard yeah look you know i was around in 2004 i worked with contour threads so i was one of the trainers with contour and i was on their international board i went to the san francisco meetings and sat on their board and stuff and so i've had a lot of experience with threads um i like threads in certain areas but I just don't think they work on the neck. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't say yeah. they worked on the neck. I just said there's a lot of people that like them. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I joke because – Jake, I, Jake I, I and I've got this. No, no, I, 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 I don't do threads and I, I'm not anti-thread. I'm just on the fence. And you do. You're an anti-threadite. You are. No, no, no. Until I see, to be honest, some incredible or, or just really good before and afters yeah. that are actual genuine before and afters, not light and shadow and – you know fakery yeah then then sure then i'd like to to train and and there's lots of different types i'm curious to know you know which ones you use and and where do you like using them the most so look i um i went off threads about four or five years ago uh because the the patients were paying a reasonable amount of money they were quite a lot of money for the number of threads that you had to use <laughs> But they just weren't getting the result that they wanted. Mm. You know, they wanted the result of a facelift. And if you have excess skin, you got to cut the skin away. Yeah, you can't just drag it back. No, it? that's right. So <laughs> it's it's good for, you know, say someone's got good skin and they've got a little bit of ptosis of the mid-face and they need that lifting, it's good for repositioning tissue. But if they've got excess skin, it, it just doesn't work so yeah. well. So... My, I'm not using threads much at all, though I did put some threads into a girl's face because I did this new thing called the cat eye lift or the fox eye lift. <laughs> I will get to that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did that, but it, because I was lifting and removing some skin, I just put some threads in which were sitting there really as collagen stimulators. Yeah. So I think that's where it works well uh, as a collagen stimulator. But to actually lift and pull if you're not removing skin, um, back in 2004, when I was, or 2005, 2006, I was in San Francisco. I remember because it was sort of my honeymoon and I was at this meeting. My wife and I were going to the Napa Valley, and uh, but I was at the meeting with uh, Contour and there must have been a panel of 25 surgeons who are all on the panel, not physicians, they're all surgeons who are on the, the panel talking about the use of contour threads. Yeah. And virtually everyone was talking about how they're using the threads by in their facelifts and, uh, you know, that, the, the contour threads were the first barbed threads to yeah. really come uh, come about. And they were talking about how they use the face with, with the threads with facelifts, et cetera, and cutting away skin, et cetera. And then I, you know, the meek little Australian <laughs> put up his hand and said, oh, I thought the whole thing about these threads was that you didn't have to actually make cuts and, you know, technique to, you know, to open the tissue. You're just making tiny little incisions. And that, that was the whole basis of Greg Ruff was the uh, the guy who invented the contour threads. And that was his, uh, his you know, thought that you're just lifting a little bit of tissue. Yeah. And that's where contour threads actually uh, fell down after that and they became – quill sutures yeah. so they they changed to a different uh they changed tack um but i i just don't believe that the threads are a great 
long-term solution. And I think in some people, they, they do work nicely. Yeah, fair mm. enough. Now, interestingly, can I say, interestingly, I did see some threads used in a nose the other yes, day. Yes, the PDO, the mini uh, yeah. mono threads. Yeah. In and, the nose. Yeah. In the nose, yeah. And what they do by using multiple threads up and down the nose, they actually bring the tissue together. And in Asian noses in particular, they can can really create uh, a little bit of a dorsum of the nose and, and lift the tip. And what I saw the other day was actually quite impressive, but the longevity, I'm not sure how long it lasts, whether it's the same as, say, using a filler. Um, yeah. I think uh, it's similar, sort of one to two years, depending on the brand. Mm. And, you know, I guess the good thing about using threads, not that I've done it, is there's no risk of occlusion, Yeah, which, which is the big thing, blindness and occlusion if you're using a filler. Mm, true. But um, you have to throw in a lot of threads and, you know, it might take a while and yeah. it's just another technique, I guess. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think the problem could be that, you know, people see these things come out and they think that it's going to be the solution to every problem and that it's just this new miracle treatment that's going to do away with fillers and surgery. But it's, it's, an ad, it's, it's another tool to be used as an adjunct. And I think that potentially people have too high expectations or think they're a complete replacement for something else. And it's not yeah. that they're not good. It's just that you need to understand the limitations of, of what they can do and using it as another tool in your arsenal. Yes. Perhaps with something else as well. Yeah, exactly. And pick your patient. Yeah. yeah. Just to, to be, um, yeah. finish off the, the neck and the non-surgical options, did you ever play with Lipodissolve or Belkyra for the submental fat? Ah, well, you see, I've been around a long time. <laughs> so in, in 2003, 2004, I actually visited a chap called Franz Hagenschlander. Um, <laughs> Is that a real person? Yeah, it, it's, it's something. It was Franz Hagenschlander. And it, it was in 2004. 2004, 2005, because my daughter was born in 2005, my first daughter, and he gave me a little present for the birth of my daughter. So, and he lived in a little place in Austria, uh, and he was an emergency medicine doctor that actually used phosphatidylcholine <laughs> in emergency medicine situations for fat embolism. Right, okay. And then he started using it for... He thought, well, if it dissolves fat in the in the veins, uh, in the circulatory system, then maybe it's going to dissolve fat in the uh, in the neck. Yeah. And so he started using it on the face, and then started using it on the body. So I went and uh, and met up with him and saw what he did in his clinic, and it was quite impressive what he did. Um, and then brought it back to Australia, brought, brought the recipe back here and we had it uh, made up by a compounding pharmacy and who still make the product today actually some 15 years later. Yeah. Um, and so back in 2005, I was injecting phosphatidylcholine and interesting, th it, was, it was actually the phosphatidylcholine had to be mixed with deoxycholic acid to actually achieve a, a stable formula. Yeah. So we weren't sure whether it was deoxycholic acid or the phosphatidylcholine that was actually dissolving the fat. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I found that you had to use a lot of it. It worked very well if you were injecting it in an area the size of a Coke can. Yeah. You know, you could get some good reduction. I thought it actually did work reasonably well on the face to get some contouring. Mm. Um, but 
a lot of the patients present with excess skin uh, and, you know, people using products like Belcara uh, for the fat reduction is, uh, you know, the, the, trying to get the skin tightening. It, it just doesn't work so yeah, well. Yeah, if it's too saggy, it won't work. But if you've yeah. got good tissue you actually get a nice tissue retraction because yep. when the fat's dissolving, there's an inflammatory cascade and it creates those fibroblasts. So, yeah, yeah just got to pick your patient again, I think. Was yeah, it called sure. Lipodissolve back then? Is that what it was Lipo called? Lipodissolve, yeah. I yeah. Remember. Yeah, I remember. yeah, I remember. Yeah. That's when Jake said, oh, it's Bill Carr. I'm like, I'm sure I've heard of this stuff before. It doesn't seem new, but is it <laughs> is it a different formula or is it the same? Is it sort of like a, have they just rebranded it and called it Bell Chiro or is, is it different? No, you know, what happened was I went to America because we, we opened up some clinics here. Mm. Um, so we're doing fat dissolving and uh, mesotherapy clinics. Yeah. And uh, we had rooms, we had about 14 rooms that we had nurses injecting and, <laughs> you know, all sorts of stuff going on. And we went to America to uh, look at a couple of clinics out of San Diego and they were using phosphatidylcholine for the same purpose but it was off-label then. Mm -hmm. And then some smart guy decided to do a trial with deoxycholic acid. And he got to, you know, the phase two trials in America. And then he ended up selling that to um, to Allegan, the same product that we had been injecting, you know, 15 years earlier, he did a trial on and it started to get some results using deoxycholic acid and not phosphatidylcholine. Oh. So it's a different formula. Yeah. Mm. I mean, your stories resonates with me because there's a lot of doctors um, here in Australia still using lipodissolve or versions of that. And I guess my, it's not a problem, but my only reservation with it is that because it's not gone through a rigorous trial and you don't exactly know the dose and it depends on the compounding pharmacy, you're not quite sure yeah. what you're getting or, or what to do. Whereas with Belkyra, because it's gone through the trials and it's a, it's a you know TGA approved, there's a method and a dose and a grid system and you know what you're doing. Yeah, that, that I like the standardization of it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, well, I, I don't do it. So, uh, you know, mine's more of a surgical approach than, than that. Sometimes it's not bad for, you know, if a patient has a little area after surgery that's a little, just a little bit swollen and you want to dissolve it and it's not appropriate to use a steroid, then you can put a little bit of lipodissolve or Belcara in there. Yeah. You know, so, but I, I don't use it a lot. Fair enough. You've had your Nefertiti lift. What is that for people who don't know? Why would you use Botox in your neck? Okay, so you know one of the most annoying muscles on the on the body is is your your, your neck muscle, the uh, the platysma, and uh, I think it's a very aging uh, muscle where you get those platysmal bands that mine are slowly disappearing. So the platysmal bands, which are those bands that go down the the center of the neck, um, and the platysma muscle is wide all the way from the middle of the neck to uh, to the outside, but it also extends up into the, the face as well. So when I do a facelift procedure, you're actually looking at the platysma muscle. Mm. And in the upper part of the face, we're underneath the muscle as it comes up into the face. And, that, and it's variable how far up it actually goes. It can go right up to the nasolabial fold. So the whole thing about Botox is it relaxes muscles. Yeah. So when you do, uh, when you inject the bands, um, the skin tends to fold around 
the muscle because it's so it's so thin there and so closely related to the muscle underneath. So when you relax the muscle, any folds will tend to relax if you get them early enough. So that's the first point. But when you do the Nefertiti lift, that's injecting Botox essentially along the border of the uh, the mandible, the undersurface border of the mandible. And that relaxes the muscles so that the muscles above the mandible, the platysma that is extending above the mandible tends to contract and you can actually get a bit of a lift as well. Yeah. And I've seen some remarkable results. So for those patients that have good skin, it's not loose, you can get a really good lower face lift uh, and some nice definition of the jawline through the Nefertiti lift. Yeah, I think it's underused. I have to say, I don't do mm. too many of them, but... Well, you need a lot of Botox. You do. I mean, I was going to you ask, know, what's your what's your recipe? Look, what's your you, dose? You need. Well, if you're just doing a Nefertiti lift, you you I would usually use at least twenty units per side. Yeah. Um, if if I can, I use forty units per side. So mm-hmm. that's almost a bottle. Yeah. Um, the platysmal bands. You know, you need about 16 units per band. Mm-hmm. So if you've got two central ones, there's 32 units. If you've got, you know, four on the outside as well, you know, that's a, that's a hell of a lot of Botox. Um, and it's the, that, that old thing of, you know, do you try it? And if it doesn't work, it's not my fault. Yes. Type of thing. But if it does work and you get a great result, then you know, you'll, you'll come back and keep using it. It's one of those ones where when you examine someone, you get them to grimace to show the platysma and often they're missing a band on one side. Is that quite common in yeah. your practice? Yeah, well, when you look at, um, when you actually do the surgery and you look at the anatomy, you, you can see some patients that have got a thick band on one side and a thin platysma on the other. Yeah. Uh, so the, the bands are reflective of the muscles. Sometimes the the muscles are way out. They don't decussate and sometimes they meet in the middle and sometimes they cross over as well. Yeah. So the, the anatomy is so variable. And uh, um, But it's very interesting. You know, I do surgery. I get in there. I cut that platysma. I suture it together. I cut the platysma across like this to, to actually really divide it and those bands recur Crazy. and they need Botox, you know. So <laughs> it's amazing that you can go and do all sorts of work on those muscles and they, mm. they still recur. One of the things that you mentioned a few minutes ago was the fox eye the fox eye lift. Yes. What yeah. is that all about? It's, it's, it sounds very interesting. Yeah, it's a um, – it's becoming very trendy actually now where the fox eye lift is lifting the you you can the, the most minimal aspect of it is just lifting the lateral part of the eyebrow so it's up and basically making a straight eyebrow coming out to the side like this um, and so people are tending to like that and a little bit of lateral brow lift and a little bit of tightening. And then you can do a combination of that and some mid-face lifting as well. So you're lifting that whole of the the, the side of the face. And uh, the girls are loving it. Um, it's a bit like uh, what's been called the ponytail lift. Mm. And the ponytail lift where incision just behind the uh, hairline uh, and going down and lifting both the lateral brow and the mid face and I've been doing that ponytail lift as well um, there's a chap Chachi Ko who uh, is in Los Angeles and he's famous for doing that ponytail lift in combination with 
virtually the Zach lift in, in the neck as well. And so the combination of those two things and a little bit of fat transfer can transform a patient's face without having to make an incision in front of the ear. But the true cat eye or fox eye lift is that lateral brow being lifted. Now, people are doing it with threads as well, getting some good results for a little while, but then... With it, a bit of bump in the forehead. Yeah, bump of the forehead, and, <laughs> and then they, they drop down. Uh, but so I'm not sure about the longevity of the threads, but yeah. uh, the, the surgical result, you know, within a week, the patients are looking great. I don't mean this controversially, because I'm sure your results look amazing, but how do you feel about, as a surgeon, sort of responding to trends and just sort of doing what's in vogue that maybe you weren't doing you know, just a few years ago. Like. Yeah, look, I I always think that uh, I'd like to see that there's some pathology there. You know, uh, firstly, I'm a doctor and I, I like to see uh, the pathology and treat it. Yeah. So if I can't see what a patient is talking about um, and because their eyebrows are already up, yes. you know, I, I won't... I won't just do it for the sake of doing it. Um, many years ago, I was doing the mid-facelift through the endoscopic techniques from the, the trans-temporal endoscopic technique that I learned from a chap, Vito Quatella. Many years ago, he came out here to Australia and taught us how to do, to do it back in, I think, like 2000, something like that. So I've, I've always been exposed to doing that. With my facelift surgery and brow lift surgery, I've been exposed to doing it. Yeah. So in, in fact, if anything, it's just a, a limitation of what I do on a day-to-day basis with my facelift surgery. Now, in saying that, it's a younger patient that's coming in wanting that procedure. Yeah, that was my question. It yeah. tends to be girls in their 20s. Yeah, 20s and 30s, um, they're wanting that procedure. And look, it's it's not, not dangerous in the right hands. It's not dangerous. Uh, it's very effective and it can give a very nice result. And so, in you know, with, I, I assess each patient individually, and if, if I think they're appropriate, I'd be happy to do it. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Mm. Well, I guess that's the challenge with everything that we do, right, whether it be fillers or breast augmentation. You know, it's it's all sort of driven by what's on trend and what people want and what people see. Other people doing, like, with these social media influences, we're sort of all victims of the same system. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if we're running out of time. We've got a big topic. Well, we're going to talk about transgender, but um, because you do a lot of those uh, procedures, not so much the uh, gender reassignment, but in terms of feminizing or masculinizing people's faces. Have we got yeah. enough time to run with that now? Or, I mean, it only took us two years to get um, Dr. Zach here, so I'm <laughs> sure if, we, if we let him go now, we might not see him for another five. <laughs> Have you got time? Yeah, I've got time. Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. Well, without further ado, we'll talk about uh, transgender surgery. So as sort of we alluded to, you don't take care of the, the gender reassignment side of things, but you do a lot of the... Um, I guess, manipulation of the features to sort of, you know, feminize features or, or masculinize them. And I think you said yep. you do more of the masculinization to feminization. Is that right? Or is the other Correct. way around? Yep. So male to female. Female to female. Male to female, yeah. Yeah. Where did you learn? Was it Colin Moore that taught you that? It, or was it, where did you learn to do these procedures? Well, I mean, a lot of the, you know, the, the rhinoplasties that we do, uh, you know, some of those 
big female noses. Yeah. Needs become small female noses. <laughs> yes. And so not too different a male nose becoming smaller. Right. Um, so rhinoplasty is really reasonably straightforward. You know, give a, a, a slight curve to the nose and make it a, you know, feminize it by giving it a, a, a curve to the nose rather than a straight masculine nose. And you can make a huge difference there um the other areas of course are with the the forehead so the i think it's it's important to look at the areas that we're actually treating with uh, mm -hmm. feminization and so a lot of men of course have bossing of the forehead they've got the very strong uh, brow muscle uh, brow uh, bones um and and also low brow so a female eyebrow should be above the bony rim, whereas a male is usually just at or just above the rim. So feminizing that aspect of it, checking I've always your brows, been, David. I am <laughs> checking to see what I've got. Feminine yeah. or masculine brows, yeah. Yeah, you're masculine. That's all right. Um, so I've I've been you know, doing browless surgery for a long time. Um, the other thing is with sinus surgery, you know, in, in some of those old days of difficult frontal sinuses we'd have to do a coronal uh, incision from you know one side of the head to the other bring forward the uh, the skull flap find the frontal sinus and open it up and drill into it and you know so i've always been comfortable about about drilling into this area so one of the things about the uh, feminization is actually lowering and flattening the bone so take any bossing out and actually flattening the bone so you don't get that uh, the the height there mm. so i've had you know that experience from uh, from that point of view of course the other part is the the jaw um, getting a wide jaw to a thinner jaw uh, with with that when we're actually reducing the size of the mandible I always do that with a maxillofacial surgeon a chap that I do some work with uh, John McHugh and so we do that together uh, for the facial feminization because that's something that's his little specialty so uh, we do that together and of course they want the Adam's apple uh, reduced as well that's a uh, it's an operation I like, actually. I did one the other day on, on a girl, uh, and uh, she had a prominent Adam's apple, and she was uh, – I did uh, hers. And uh, that's to, to reduce the actual size of it, the Adam's apple. And that's a very nice, straightforward operation as well. Slightly off topic, but um, the transgender patients that come to you, have they already gone through psychological profiling and maybe even – gone through gender assignment surgery first yeah a, a, a lot of those patients have already had the psychological assessments they've uh, been on hormone therapy they've often had their breast surgery already yeah I, th I think the last step is to have the gender reassignment right okay. um, because that's they can do all the other things which can be reversed yes to to a degree um, and then the gender reassignment is uh, last so so by the time they've come to see me they're they're well and truly on their way yeah. to their uh you know their gender reassignment other than having the um the surgery down below yeah mm. i'm wondering for maintenance i mean this is where filler can really come in to create a feminine chin or masculine chin broadening the jaw uh even softening that forehead bossing that you mentioned so yeah do you do you use fillers sort of for more maintenance down the line or or similar to your vision rhinoplasties just to sort of touch up occasionally? 
Yeah, for, for touching up, look, these patients, they they are very keen to have a surgical procedure. Yeah. And a lot of them were traveling to Thailand and uh, having their surgery over there. And of course, that can't happen now. And so I'm seeing a lot of transgender patients coming to me for the facial feminization. Yeah, yeah. A lot of patients, I mean, this is the thing that uh, a lot of people for hair transplant, I'm doing hair transplant as well. Yeah. And that that's uh, with the facial feminization as well. Um, you know, hairline advancement and then hair transplants. Um, the, the People can't travel to Turkey, to Thailand and have these procedures. So uh, as well as not being able to spend your money overseas because you're not going on holidays, these guys are stranded and so they're coming to see That's me as well. That's a really good point. Yeah, I didn't think mm, of that. That could yeah. explain the increase in demand perhaps as well. Oh, yeah, I think so. Well, what's the biggest challenge of performing these procedures? Is it more about, I guess, because I imagine that, um, you know, this is a really um, confronting and sensitive topic for people that want to go through with these procedures. You're sort of not dealing with your sort of run-of-the-mill you know, uh, sort of request for a surgical procedure. Do you find that these patients are a lot more, I guess, trying to think of the right words, um, sensitive or anxious or, I mean, is, yeah, I'm just curious what yeah. the challenges are. Look, they are. Um, Being as sensitive as possible, obviously, yeah. Yeah, I, I think like I was alluding to before, it's getting the patient into your mm. your practice, making them feel comfortable being completely non-judgmental. I think that's a very important aspect to, to not be judgmental at all uh, and giving them realistic expectations of what we can achieve. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, we, some, some of the, the patients come in and they've got their long hair, they've got breasts and things, but they look still like men with makeup on, you know? So there, there's a lot of them need a lot of work done and you can only achieve a certain result. Um, one of the things that I do pride ourselves on in in my practice is we really care for the patients post-surgery. Uh, in the, the 10 days or two weeks post-rhinoplasty after they have uh, the splint on the nose, I see my patients three or four times in the clinic. They come in, they have their nose cleaned out, they have... Uh, um, you know, LED light therapy, they come in and we just hold their hand, yeah. you know, through that whole procedure. So that's true for all my patients. Um, but the the transgender ones uh, also need a lot of hand holding. Yeah. But interestingly, a lot of them are very confident mm. and they've started their journey and they say, you know, I'm, I'm ready for this. And they, they come in and I, I really enjoy their personalities and, uh, and, and working with them. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's something that a lot of them have thought about for a really long time. Um, you know, it's been an issue that, you know, that they felt like, you know, they didn't look like they felt. Um, and I guess it's such a yeah. big, it's almost like a relief, you know, being able to, to I guess, yeah. aesthetically look how they feel. So I guess they're, they're probably very rewarding for you as well to sort of make such, such a positive change in people's lives. It is, it is. You know what, doing cosmetic surgery is a, it's a big decision to, to go in for an elective procedure, you know, to make that decision, you, you've got to really put your trust in that person that's doing it. For the transgender patient, to change their gender to, you know, it's obviously a natural thing for them to, for, to a degree, but, you know, they're, they're making, I think. It's even, the ultimate end point, isn't it? It is. You know, if, whether you do a facelift for someone, rhinoplasty, that it can be life-changing for various reasons, but to deliver changing someone's appearance to what they, you know, how they feel on the inside and they've never looked like that, that's, that must be truly life-changing. 
Yeah, it is. And, th- and that's one of the things that I really enjoy about it as well. Yeah. yeah. Very, a very emotional journey, I think. You know, they've sort of visualized it and then they're sort of there. I guess it would be very overwhelming and emotional. I think that's why, you know, you mentioned that that, that extensive hand-holding hand um, period is really, really important because even though if they might have wanted it, it's still, a, you know, you, you sometimes you want something your whole life and when you actually get it, you're like, it, it's still quite, still quite yeah. confronting. Oh, it is. And, you know, of course, noses, they, they take the longest of all the cosmetic yeah, procedures. Yeah, two years or something, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, you, you see a change, but it's, it's hand-holding throughout that period of time yeah. for two years yeah. to say, you know, your nose is going to get better. It's going to get better. It's going to yeah. get better. I promise you it's going to get better. Yeah. Look, look at the photo that I took on the table. You know, it yeah. looked great before the swelling was there. Yeah, and then it sort of, you know, it doesn't heal symmetrically. So you'll get one side that'll go down and it looks like it's crooked. Then it sort of goes back the other way. So it's quite <laughs> a roller coaster oh, for people. It, it is. Noses are, you know, breasts you can hide. Uh, faces, you know, are also things you can hide scars with hair, etc. Yeah. But noses right in the middle of your face. So, yeah. I have to say the rhinoplasty patients that I've met, you know, for injectables, they are the most difficult to to please and they've always got a story about how things aren't perfect and they want a revision and it just seems to be that particular area of the of the face that the the expectation is, you know, through the roof. Oh yeah, I know, I know. Very rarely do I get upset with patients, but the other day I got upset with one. <laughs> her husband was there, and he was rolling his eyes at me, and uh, and I was like, <laughs> I, "What can I do? Like, what do you want me to do for you?" You know, she her nose was slightly off center. It looks fantastic. She looks fantastic. You wouldn't even know that she's had a rhinoplasty, and she, you know, then she started saying, "Oh, my nose is slightly off center," and I did a lip lift on her as well. So the lip lift and the nose, and she looks brilliant. Um, just a little bit of scarring that needs to be to settled down. And then she was talking about the ALAR rim. One side is one millimeter higher yeah. than the other and this and that. And, and I said to her, you're complaining about everything on your nose. And that's when the husband rolled his eyes at me. It was as if to say, I know, I listen to this every day. Yeah. Some people become really obsessed with yeah. it. I actually have a psychologist that works in our, our office and uh, we if I have any doubts about a patient before surgery, I get them to see the psychologist. If the patients aren't coping post-surgery, I get them to see the, the uh, psychologist as well, which I, I think can be very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. We've had a psychologist on to talk about yeah, that very topic. Dr. Shab came on a All couple right, of Shab, times. Yeah. She, she works with a couple of surgeons around here. Yeah, yeah, she does a lot with, with noses too. Yeah, it's such a – well, it's such a – you can't miss it. As you said, you can hide your breasts or, you can you know, you can hide something, but – it's a focal point of your face. I mean, every millimeter makes a difference. I remember Shah, Dr. Shahidi was telling me once that he, he was dealing with a complaint and the complaint was the nose was too perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I've had a guy that wanted his bump back. Right. You know, and it's like, yeah, here's a lump of balloon. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how it happens because I, I saw this guy at three weeks after surgery and I, I walked in the room and I said, this is a perfect nose. It looks fantastic. Are you are you happy? He said, oh, you know, I'm thinking that I should have my bump back. I was like, I was gob, gobsmacked. <laughs> you know the funny thing? Um, I never thought about this. My dad, um, he had a, a deviated septum and as part of that, they, they shaved the bump. Yeah. 
And I was only little or like 10 or whatever. And, you know, you see your dad and it's totally transformational that, that when, when you go from a big honker <laughs> to suddenly having like a nice ski slope. Yeah. And, you know, maybe you, maybe some of these people sort of don't deal with that. It's just a different person, isn't it? It is quite, it's unusual. Yeah. But if you're not expecting it and you, and you haven't really thought about it or, or seen the, you know, you're mocked up before and afters, maybe they're just like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, it's true. He uh, he said it was a family bump, and I, he was going away for uh, work for six weeks. So I said, "Look, go away, see what people say to you. You know, see how you you react to that." And and he came back and said, "Oh, everyone, you know, no one said a word about my nose, and when I told them, they thought it looked fantastic." but I want my bump back. Yeah. So I just used a bit of filler. I put a bit of filler and <laughs> then he came back, had a bit more filler and, and that fixed it. You know? yeah, I wish I could have a practice where I could create lumps and say, well done. Oh, yeah, you I, I know. I know. It doesn't happen often, thank God. I need to add that to my treatment menu. Yeah. Ah, the nose bump. <laughs> yeah. 0.1 of filler, $1,000. Yeah, oh. exactly. I was always wondering, how do you masculinize a nose? Because we always hear about how you reduce a nose, you shave it down, you do this. How do you make one bigger? Are you sticking cartilage in there? or what, what Yeah. Are you doing? So to, to masculinize a nose, you really need to put some a whole lot of cartilage in. Yeah, right. So to do that, you need rib. Right. Uh, so you can use rib cartilage to increase the height of the dorsum, increase the projection of the uh, of the tip. Um, it you're limited by the amount of skin that's available because if it's really tight, there's only so much that you can stretch the skin. Um, you know, you can try that with fillers, of course, uh, to to test it uh, and see whether the patient likes it or not. Because uh, if they've got a, a curve to the nose, quite feminine, you know, you can masculinize it like that. Uh, but otherwise, you have to use rib cartilage. Right. Yeah. Gosh, that sounds painful. <laughs> yeah. Well, now we actually have uh, rib cartilage that is available as donor rib as yeah. well so patients are donating their rib and uh, oh. it's all been so it's been available in Australia for uh, about a year now in America it's been available in American Europe for many years and uh, it works perfectly well it's fantastic it, it comes it's frozen uh, we thaw it out on the table and it cuts beautifully it's it's, it's perfect and it lasts so uh, it costs about three thousand dollars but money well spent because it's decreased time on the operating table so mm, yeah. there's less risk of a collapsed lung yeah exactly <laughs> and two wounds two infections yep all the rest of it yeah interesting absolutely well, the last thing I wanted to ask you or talk about was um, your experience on the ACCS. You're uh, the f a former president. Yep. Can you explain what that is? For well, the people I was going to let <laughs> explain what it is. So, uh, look, well, I was going to say it's the Australian College of Cosmetic Surgery. Yeah. Um, I guess for all those people that are listening, maybe not so much in Australia but overseas, could you sort of just explain what it is? Um, and then I guess we want to talk about the plastic cosmetics debate a little bit. Don't want to get too political, but just keen to have your view, you know, being a surgical specialist that uses the term facial plastic surgeon. You've also been on, on, on the cosmetic on part of the ACCS. Yeah. You know, how, how do you see a solution forward for this uh, this sort of turf war or the, these challenge between these two you yeah. know, groups of people? So the, the ACCS is the, the Australasian College of Cosmetic Surgery, and it was a, a group that was formed uh, to educate uh, surgeons uh, 
into cosmetic surgery because uh, plastic surgery training uh, is not complete uh, a lot of the time in terms of doing cosmetic surgery. So, uh, and ENT surgical training, you know, we don't get much uh, cosmetic surgery. Uh, so the whole aim of the ACCS was to try and, and teach surgeons how to do cosmetic surgery. Um, now, one of the things, the, the criteria that actually uh, occurred early in the piece was that we weren't getting surgeons coming through. We are getting people that hadn't got onto a surgical training or had been on surgical training, had not completed their FRACS, and they wanted to learn cosmetic surgery. Um, and so there was, there was a bit of controversy about that. And now the College of Cosmetic Surgery is only taking surgical trainees, people that have completed surgical training, to actually do surgery. Um Look, I've, I've always been very proud of the number of years that I've spent doing my surgical training. It's 13 years from the beginning of medicine through to the end of my specialty training and, and time overseas, etc. is 13 years. So I've been very proud and very uh, um, vocal about the amount of time that I spent learning my skill. And uh, so it, in many ways, I... I want people that are doing cosmetic surgery or surgical procedures to actually be well-trained. Now, there are a lot of people out there, a lot of doctors who are doing cosmetic procedures, uh, surgical procedures that have absolutely no training at all. And they've gone out and they've learned it either by the internet or they've visited other people and they've done a three-day course or whatever. And the whole basis of the College of Cosmetic Surgery was to try and and, and stop that from happening and actually give people the opportunity to actually learn over a two-year period uh, the art of cosmetic surgery. So, yeah, it is controversial. It's always going to be controversial. There's controversy between plastics and ENT. Oh, really? Uh, okay, I didn't know let that alone, <laughs> Let alone plastics uh, and cosmetic. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, should we be doing noses? Well, I mean that's our <laughs> that's our sweet spot uh, rhinoplasty. Uh, you know, should we be doing facelifts? Uh, I did parotid surgery when I was doing uh, my facial uh, training in ENT, and so lifting up the face and you know removing a bit of skin, and so there, there's always this crossover. Yeah, I, I don't know. I remember a, uh, a chap. Oh. He came out to Adelaide when before I even got into uh, ENT specialty training, and he was saying that for 25 years in America that he'd been fighting the uh, the the plastics about the facial plastic surgery being done by ENT uh, specialization rather than plastics. So that was that was back in you know. Oh, 1992. So this has been going on forever, and I don't think it's going to change. <laughs> yeah. Well, I so, think that um, we had um, Dr. Tabacoli on here, and he was, you know, gave us his thoughts on it as well. And I think he was, and Jake, you might remember, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, was advocating for, um, you know, a third party group to come in and actually start looking at a standardized, you know, allow, as you said, like having a cosmetic surgery specialty that, that is recognized by everyone. Yeah. 
And so he yeah. was even saying, you know, some of the plastics training, um, you know, as long as you, you're saying that, you know, you go on and you do all these other procedures that you never end up doing when you want to do cosmetic surgery, he was talking about, you know, everyone getting, I guess, to some point in the road where everyone accepts that's the standard level of surgical skill and training that you need. And then if you want to do cosmetic surgery, then you go and learn that as a subspecialty. Yeah. I think was what, was that, was that what he sort of? Pretty much, yeah. And um, maybe developing a pathway for the senior trainees to actually you know, regularly spend time in the cosmetic as well as public. So they're actually exposed to this stuff because in, you know, a year or two when they've done their exam, suddenly they're the guys supposed to be offering it. Yeah. Um, so just sort of rather than it being an afterthought and scrambling to do a fellowship in America, actually, you know, yeah. look after your own and, and do it here in Australia. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great idea. We're, look, the difference between now and 20 years ago is that there are a whole lot more people now that are skilled in cosmetic surgical procedures, yeah. whereas 20 years ago there are only uh, a few. Uh, and so we do have the resources now to be able to, to do that, to teach that. But then it's going to come down to, well, who are the teachers and who are they willing to teach? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's No one wants all, to give the, the secret sauce. Uh, no, that's right. <laughs> And the other thing is that um, we're also seeing that trainees now are not spending 24 hours in hospital. They're spending eight hours in hospital. And then, you know, if the surgery's still going and it comes five o'clock and they're meant to leave, some of them leave. You know, <laughs> some of them leave because they're in the public system because uh, they're not meant to spend more than 40 hours a week. You know, training is ridiculous. You know, we used to spend 40 hours in one day, uh, you know, doing <laughs> doing our uh, some of our procedures. So uh -huh. it's, a, it's a very different world that we, uh, we live in nowadays. And, of course, cosmetic surgery is very – it's in vogue. Uh, you can make good money out of it. And so a lot of people want to do it. Yeah. So I think it comes down to the consumer as well. They've got to do their research, got to make sure that whoever they're going to, be they plastics, ENT, or purely cosmetic or general surgeons, you know, that they that they ask the questions, how many of these have you done? How skillful are you? Um, and I think the social media helps to, to really mm. bring that into alignment as well. Absolutely. Agreed. Well, that sounds like a really nice note to sort of uh, end things on. But um, before we let you go, um, do you want to just let our listeners know how they get in contact with you if they'd like to, you know, discuss coming to have a consult or want to learn more about a procedure? Um, let us know how we how they get in touch. Yes, well, um, they can get in touch through my my website, yep. uh, which is www.drzachariah.com.au and faceliftplasticsurgery.com.au. Um, they can ring my office, of course, which is uh, 02 uh, 9192-1600. Yeah. Uh, that's our office, or 1-800-NEW-LIFT, N-U-L-I-F-T. That's a... Been an old one for for a while. Well, yeah. your Instagram is also Dr. Zachariah. Yes, uh, my Instagram. Actually, I, I'm very surprised how uh, you know how things have changed. And it was Facebook that was yeah. popular, but Instagram now has That's been so successful. Yeah, yeah. So next thing I'm going to do is a TikTok. But oh gosh, I look. I look forward to seeing that. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I just don't know what to do with that one. <laughs> You're going to dance and do yeah. something. Jake will give you some ideas. He's, yeah. the king, he's the king of social media. He loves it. No, no. So I'm not on TikTok at the moment. I just. Yeah, I'm so waiting. I'm waiting for. The, I'm waiting for your TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I said when I get to ten thousand followers, I'll do a TikTok uh, dance. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for your time. It was definitely worth the wait to get you here. So thank, thanks for uh, being generous with your time on a Sunday night and joining us for, for a scotch and a little bit of a celebration, getting back in studio after the long uh, hiatus and, you know, being attached, surgically attached to Zoom for the last three months. Yeah, no, I appreciate your time, Mike. It's been awesome. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you very, very much. much. enjoyed it. Thank you. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.